You have skills. You probably have a pretty unique set of skills. And so in a world with so much need, why in the world would you not work in an area that you're good at and you have a natural bent toward and you enjoy working in? There's not a skill or skill set that you can imagine that's not needed in some impact organization somewhere. Welcome to the Journey to Impact podcast, where we show you how to turn your unique passion into a strategy to change the world. What are your unique skills? You may not even think of yourself as having a skill because it's something you do every day and it comes easily for you. But how long would it take someone else to learn all that you know and be able to do what you can do at the same level as you? Now you can hopefully see how valuable your unique skill or skills can be. Today we'll look at how your skills can be used for impact and how they are an essential factor to help you build your framework for impact. It's time to get off the bench. Let's do this. Here's your host, Ed Gillentine. Thanks for joining this, our fifth podcast in a series on the basics of impact. And we're in the middle of discussing your unique framework of impact and hopefully expanding on the ideas and the principles in the book around that subject called The Journey to Impact. In our last session, we talked about your passions and how they relate to your unique impact. This session, we're going to talk about your unique skills and your unique skill sets. And then in our next podcast, we'll wrap up this section in the book and talk about your unique experiences and how they'll all work together to help you find your impact sweet spot. So let's just dive right in. Your skill set is really unique to you, and it's a critical part of developing your unique framework for impact. And I want to differentiate skills and skill sets from giftings and talents, right? So giftings and talents are certainly a part of your skill set, but I believe that skills are learned and that they're honed with practice. So they may be enhanced by talent. So think about Michael Jordan or Tiger Woods. But skills are learned and acquired through practice. Very few people, including Michael Jordan or Tiger Woods, are very good at what they do primarily because of God-given talent. In every single case I can think of, hard work, discipline, and lots and lots of practice were the major drivers behind an expert in any given skill or field. Right. A lot of times there's a basic level of skill in a given area that is developed pretty easily simply because there's a propensity toward that particular skill. So when I was a kid, I was pretty organized. My Legos were typically neatly stored in little boxes. Even my closet was usually pretty clean, probably because I didn't have that much stuff to put in it. The books on my bookshelves were even alphabetically arranged by author. Um, which I still do today, and my wife laughs at me. She says no one else in the world does that. So if you do, could you uh, send me an email and just let me know there's there's others of me out there. Um, no one ever told me to be organized. I just did it that way. I liked it that way. I was bent toward that particular skill. As I grew older, I continued to get become more and more organized. And by the time I had my first job out of college, I could pretty well juggle a lot of different tasks and responsibilities. I would say up until that time, sort of that first job, the skill of organization and administration came pretty easily to me. But then my skill set, sort of that natural skill set, if you will, uh, pushed me into areas of greater responsibilities with a lot more moving parts. 
And at that point, just my natural skill and propensity couldn't really keep up. And I had to put more energy into honing what I would call my organizational skills. And getting to that next level took years of practice. If you think about it on a scale of 1 to 100, with 1 being a low skill level and 100 being an expert, going from, say, level 1 to level 80 is probably relatively easy if you have a natural tendency for that skill. But going from level 80 to 85 gets exponentially harder. And once you get to around level 85, each additional step up requires exponentially more time and energy. Now, that doesn't mean you stop working on your skill or craft when you hit level 80 or 85 in my analogy, but it does mean that it's going to take more intentional and focused practice. In my observation, it seems that the more competent a person gets at a particular skill, the more enjoyable it becomes for that person. I'm thinking of golf, right? I'm not a very good golfer. I didn't pick it up till later in life. And I believe the first time I got beat by my daughter, she was 11. (laughs) So um, it's probably good for building humility in me. But in golf, if I play enough to where I can get into the low 90s or miracle of all miracle, high 80s, golf is pretty enjoyable, which makes me want to play more, which makes me get better at it, right? So... In areas where you have a natural proclivity and you get more competent at a skill, it just becomes more enjoyable. And also the more you do it because you enjoy doing it. Um, And then also sometimes your boss or your supervisor wants you to do it because you do so well and you seem to enjoy it. And then the more you practice it, the better you get. It's kind of like grooving a, a record maybe or a CD. So I love looking at paintings even though I don't fully understand them many times and can't really appreciate all the work that goes into them. But I don't paint because I'm really bad at painting. My wife's a painter and occasionally she'll talk me into trying. I'm I'm a really bad painter. And I'm not going to put the time and effort into getting good at it, so I don't do it. On the other hand, I love analyzing businesses. Why, you ask? Well, because I'm good at it, so I do more of it. And as a result, I get better at it. I get quicker at it. When I started my career in the business world, I never dreamed I would be good at analysis, much less love doing it. But in my initial job, I learned how to do it, and then I realized I enjoyed analysis. And because I enjoyed it, I took every opportunity to do it, even when I didn't have to. And the more I did it, the more skilled I became, the more I enjoyed it, and I just continued to repeat that cycle. As a matter of fact, that cycle is probably one of the main drivers of my journey to impact today. When I find something that I'm interested in, I dig into it and sort of get that cycle kicked off. If you're good at numbers or organization or systems or analysis, maybe you ought to consider areas of impact that utilize that skill set. If you're really good at communication or vision casting, why not look for an organization that needs those skills in an area of impact that you're passionate about? One of the things I've noticed about a lot of impact organizations is that they're constantly on the edge of financial disaster, and they very rarely have a clearly defined vision or strategy. So if those are areas that you're good at and you enjoy doing, why not try to help in those areas? Because the impact would be exponential. As a matter of fact, I started getting involved with impact organizations simply because I wanted to figure out a way to make them more financially sustainable 
And I wanted to figure out a way to free the typically visionary founders and subject matter experts to spend more time in the field doing what they loved, what they were good at, what they had propensities toward, rather than raising money or doing administrative work in the organization. And so this is my point. You have skills. You probably have a pretty unique set of skills. And you have at least one skill, if not several, that is needed by an impact organization somewhere in the world. And so in a world with so much need, why in the world would you not work in an area that you're good at and you have a natural bent toward and you enjoy working in? I'll promise you this. There's not a skill or skill set that you can imagine that's not needed in some impact organization somewhere. It might take you a while to find it, but it's there. So skills, as we've been talking about, are both learned and acquired through practice. So for part of our purposes and for part of this discussion, we need to talk about your training. There's formal and informal training. There's certified, sort of like maybe a medical doctor or a dentist or an architect, or not, maybe what you would call the school of hard knocks. I've got a lot of training in that school. And so your training affects your skills. And the more specific your training and the longer it takes, maybe think about a neurosurgeon, takes about 12 years maybe, the more seriously you should consider working within that field. To continue that thought of physicians, I've got a friend who's a very specialized physician, and we had some serious discussions about he and his family leaving the U.S. to work as a physician in a developing country. And some of the things that we discussed were his years of specific training and the years of specific experience after his training that he acquired and the specialized equipment on which he had been trained, which, by the way, there was zero of the equipment he'd been trained on in this country that he wanted to serve. So after months of thinking about it and praying about it, he felt like he would have greater impact by continuing his work here in the U.S. while maximizing his time off. And he had a career that had, I want to say, 10 to 12 weeks off a year. So he could maximize his time off and his wealth to grow and impact his passions in underserved areas, not just in that one country, but all over the world. I think relative to your skill set and your training, you need to think about how many other people in the world there are that can do what you can do. So we were mentioned neurosurgeon. One source that I looked at indicates that there are fewer than 4,000 board-certified neurosurgeons in the U.S. That's roughly one-half of 1% of all the physicians in the country. So not only is it a part of a subgroup, physicians, it's only one-half of 1% of all of that subgroup of physicians in the country. As a side note, according to the USDA, there are only about 4,000 registered apiarists. Remember the beekeepers we were talking about, I believe, in our last session? And they're responsible for over 3 million bee colonies. So, from a statistical perspective, they might be even more specialized than a neurosurgeon and probably in even greater demand. But I digress. The point is, the more unique your skill set, the more I would encourage you to seek areas of impact that utilize those skills. Now, I do want to say that just because you're a physician or just because you've had years of specialized training, don't lock yourself into you know having to work in or have impact in that area. It's likely that you will, but occasionally I've met people that became, I'm thinking in particular of a friend of mine that became an anesthesiologist because it was the right thing to do. And I don't, I can't remember it was his Folks that encouraged him to do that or just, you know, societal pressures. 
but after he'd been practicing five or six years, he walked away to become a photographer. And that's his passion. He has a skill set at it. So it's not always that you need to stay in those areas, but it's certainly something that you need to strongly, strongly consider. Let me briefly mention that making money is also a skill set. You and I know people who have an ability to make money no matter what their socioeconomic level, no matter what their education, no matter what their connections, they just seem to know how to make money. If that's your skill set, and I should say in parentheses in an ethical and honorable manner, embrace it. Why would you spend your time going to Africa to do medical clinics for the poor, something you're probably not good at, and plenty of other people really are, when you can be making money in your sleep and funding people who are gifted at providing medical care for the poor in Africa? So I'm not saying you should never help serve the poor, but I am saying that you should consider spending as much of your time as possible in an area that you're highly skilled in. Let's talk briefly about psychological and emotional makeup of humans. I think this is an important area and it can get overlooked. I'm a big fan of psych evaluations, personality tests and the like. I just finished reading about Enneagrams. Um, It's not something that I get super fired up about, but I think they're important enough. So I make myself read the DISC test. There's There's a bunch of different ways to evaluate your personality and your sort of psychological makeup. And learning how you're psychologically and emotionally designed can have a huge impact on your, really on every area of your life. Areas in which a person has strong natural tendencies are typically really difficult to change. Many times learned traits and tendencies offer opportunities for change and growth, but if you're on the extreme introverted end of the introvert-extrovert spectrum, for example, It may not be something you can change no matter how many self-help seminars you attend or how many books you read, and that's fine. You just need to simply find a way to work within the framework of how you're designed. Does that make sense? So, for example, it's probably not a good fit for you to be in a position that constantly requires you to work a crowd or constantly requires you to meet new people. Think primary fundraiser of the charity for your choice. If you are on the more introverted end of the introvert-extrovert spectrum. Now, we all know plenty of introverted people that are really fantastic at, quote, playing extrovert for short periods of time, but they typically know their limits if they're good at it. And for whatever reason, they've been forced to learn how to work a crowd and meet people, and they've been able to learn how to balance the hardwired needs related to being on the introverted end of the spectrum with maybe what I would call their extrovert-related requirements of a job or a social context. But in my observation, when they get out of balance for very long, burnout is going to happen. So if you're good at vision casting and strategic thinking, but you hate the details of financial management, I would suggest you probably shouldn't be on an audit committee, right? But if you're an extrovert and you want to do research for six months a year at a remote location in Greenland on the uh, seals or Greenland sharks or whatever animals up there, I would suggest you better proceed with caution. Because to be six months by yourself as an extrovert would probably drive you crazy. So my point in all of that is that while you always want to be increasing your skills and stretching your limits, be really careful if you're trying to force yourself into skills that your psychological and emotional makeup doesn't really fit. When at all possible, play to your strengths. My wife Liz and I learned really quickly that we don't have the skill set to work with the at-risk kids in Ethiopia. The abuse and neglect that they've been through has profoundly impacted them 
not just physically, but also emotionally and spiritually. And as much as we love them and feel a deep compassion and a deep connection to them, we realize that we would do more harm than good if we actually worked with them hands-on. I say that because Liz is a really accomplished primary school teacher. She understands kids. She's got years of experience and training to work with them, but not in the specific arena of at-risk children in a totally different culture. And so it was a really difficult struggle for her to accept that she couldn't get into the hands-on involvement, the details of loving on and caring for the orphans and street kids of Addis Ababa, but her desire to have positive and lasting impact overrode her desire to have direct hands-on involvement. So she and I both try to work in areas of our other strengths, like maybe networking, organizational skills, or advising and funding. And we have been able to see over the last 10 or 15 years how that has freed the visionaries and the subject matter experts to do what they're good at, which is working directly with at-risk children. So now they have more impact and we have a part in it. So as we wrap this session on skills up, I want you to take some time and think about your skill sets and write them down. We'll be coming back to those over the next couple of sessions, and they're going to be really critical when it gets to the time where we try to hone in on the sweet spot of impact for you. But take at least 15 minutes, write them down, and when you come back to the next podcast, we'll be talking about experiences, and then we're going to work on tying everything together and trying to hone in on your unique impact sweet spot. Thanks for joining us. I'll see you next time. So now that you've been thinking about the areas where you're most passionate and the areas where you have strengths, next time we'll add in the last consideration for finding your impact sweet spot, which is your unique experience. Then Ed's going to walk us through a process we can use to help you really clarify what that sweet spot looks like for you. I'll see you then.